I have a few thoughts to share with you about our reading from the book of Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 4. It's found on page 978 in your pew Bibles. It might help if you follow along with me. That's page 978 in your pew Bibles. While you're going there, let me remind you of something I haven't reminded you of in a while. Um, have you noticed the print in the pew Bibles is really small and hard to read? That was a decision made on purpose. Because pew Bibles that are hard to read tend to stay in the pew after the service and not follow people home. If you're going to steal a Bible, at least steal one you can read, right? If you don't have a Bible, let me know and I'll get you a Bible before you leave. I mean, if you're going to steal something, you might as well steal a Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to pick up where Father Alex left off on us last week. Alex and Jody are up in Georgia with uh, one of Jody's favorite aunts this weekend. But I want to pick up with, uh, with, what, with where he was last week. He addressed verses 1 through 16, talking about a call to unity within the body of Christ. And there's three different areas of unity that we're called to. Father Alex touched on all three of them. Uh, in verse 3, there's the call to unity in the spirit. That's that Christian unity that feels good. The unity that we feel when we're around people who name the name of Christ. And then in verse 4, there is the call to unity in faith. That unity that oftentimes causes a little bit of uncomfortableness because it deals with truth. Unity is built in the spirit, yes, but also built in truth and in faith, and then finally in maturity. There's a call to unify, unity within the body of Christ as we grow together into the image of Christ. And it's that last bit that I want to build off on, the call to unity. With verse 17, we start a different call to the church, the call to holy living. And here's that personal holiness thing that we don't like to hear about. But here we run into it again, the call to a holy life. And if you don't know me very well, I'm not preaching a holier-than-thou sermon. I'm preaching a holier-than-me sermon. Because I need to be a better person than I am. In reading through our Ephesians passage for this morning, there are four questions that look to me that, that Paul is providing the answer to. And the first question is, what is a pagan society like? Or what are the characters, characteristics of a pagan society? What are the marks of a pagan society? A pagan society is a society with no knowledge of the one true God, a society which has rejected any reliance on God, a society which we'll see in a few minutes worships the creature more than the creator. What is that kind of society like? Well, in verse 19, we're given, given a one-sentence summary. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Just a few words and only one sentence, but it's packed with meaning. The English word callous there translates a Greek word that means without sensitivity to evil. A hard-hearted society, one that's been hardened against evil and suffering in the world. A society, for example, that could take glory in gladiator fights or rejoice in seeing spectacles of evil taking place. The English word sensuality translates the concept of public disregard for standards of social conduct and decency. That word sensuality refers to the concept of being out in, in public 
The word, English word impurity translates a Greek word that means a private loss of restraint in moral behavior. A society which is callous, no longer sensitive to evil that it comes across, which is, which is sensual, in which public disregard for long-standing standards of social decency and behavior are disrupted. Impurity, the private loss of restraint in moral behavior. And as I thought about those characteristics, I thought, wow, that first century Ephesus sounds like a rough place to live, a tough place to raise kids, the hardness of heart to evil all around it, the public disregard for standards of behavior, a private loss of moral restraint. I think, wow, that first century Ephesus must have been a hard place to raise kids, must have been a hard place to walk a Christian life. Our psalm appointed for today reminded us of the importance of passing on to children what God has done in our lives. And if you, if you caught it, the goal is not only to pass it on to our children, but to our children's children, and eventually our children's children. In a few weeks, uh, I believe it's August 26th, we'll be having a child dedication for children going off to the school year. Between now and then, that special time when we want to celebrate our children moving into a new grade and so on. When you go through the stores and you see the back-to-school sale, back to school sales and you hear on the news about the back-to-school sales tax reprieve and all those things, have that in mind to pray for our kids. And also pray for our adults. Because I imagine first century Ephesus and 21st century America were difficult places for adults to live in as well. And Paul is addressing exactly that issue. Back, for a second, back, back to verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, he's writing to a church which is entirely made up of Gentile believers. That's clear from verse 1. I mean, from chapter 1. And he's telling them, don't live like the people you live among do. It'd be like Paul's telling us, don't live like the people in, Mar- in, Mar- in Alachua County live like. You say, well, I live in Alachua County. Well, then don't live like those people. But that's where I live. That's where I live. So that's the first question. What is a pagan society like? I mean, I guess it's always been hard to raise kids. But then kids today maybe face challenges that we didn't. But the second question is, why is a pagan society like this? What causes pagan society to be like, to be like this? I mean, that's one of the big questions that, that, that the, the local university tries to answer, right? What are the causes of things? But Paul says that the problem starts with the mind. And now back to verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The problem, Paul says, is with their minds. Their minds are futile, darkened, and ignorant. Futile, darkened, and ignorant. These are harsh words. I think I'm going to borrow some of those in my great essay. This is the product of a futile, darkened, and ignorant mind. It's pretty harsh, 
a futile, dark, and ignorant mind. Now, before we go on, it must be pointed out that Paul himself has a high regard and respect for the pagan philosophers of his age. He grew up in Tarsus, a city known for having a very large library, second only, or third only, to, to Alexandria and Antioch. Several schools dotted the landscape of Tarsus. And at some point, we know he received a thorough education in Greek philosophy. And we know this because he quotes Greek philosophers and poets, several of them in his writings, apparently from memory. And the Ephesians themselves knew that Paul respected the intellectual life of his time. The Ephesians themselves knew this in particular because Paul taught in a school in Ephesus owned by a Greek man named Tyrannus for two years. That's one of those half verses in the Bible that you wish, whoa, what, what, what more could we say about that? You can read about this all, all too briefly for our curiosity in Acts chapter 19. He teaches in the school of Tyrannus. And there's a textual tradition for five hours every day. That's one of those half verses that you just want to wonder, what, oh, what was going on for those two years? How did he impress this Greek teacher to, to have him lecture in his school? How did he interact with the Gentile students in the school? We don't know. But Paul isn't attacking the pagan world around him for using their minds. He attacks the pagan world around him for not using their minds in the area of the greatest importance, and that is the relationship between God, their creator, and humanity. Just in a few verses here in Ephesians 4, we have a brief summary of an argument that Paul lays out in more detail in Romans chapter 1. He lays out this, this argument beginning in Romans 1 verse 18, after, by the way, in verse 14 of Romans 1, saying he desires to go to Rome to speak to some educated Greek people because he wants to speak to people who are wise. He's not putting them down for using their minds. But here's Paul's argument. It's an expansion of the argument in Ephesians, but the same argument. I'll just read it to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, futile again, and their foolish hearts were darkened, darkened again. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul walks through the streets of these Greek cities, and he's impressed with the, with the philosophers and the scientists of the age. And he looks at them worshiping statues of dogs and snakes. The dumbest thing ever. Why are you praying to a bunch of rocks? You claim to be wise, and yet you become fools, thinking that rocks run the universe. And Paul goes on, after starting with the mind of the pagan world, therefore, for this reason, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There's the impurity again, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. A pagan society doesn't need to worship stone idols. It can worship human idols and idols in human hearts. What's in common 
is that they all worship the creature rather than the creator. Well, the third question, what difference does Christ make? And here we go to verse 20. Let me read the rest of the passage fully so you get the full sense, and then we'll look at it. But that, Paul says, not like the way the people around them are living, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First notice that Paul identifies Jesus Christ with truth. Paul isn't saying that Jesus taught true things, or that Jesus points the way to truth, or that Jesus shows us a way to find our own truth, but that Jesus is the truth. And Paul here is simply repeating what Jesus himself claimed in John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul's common way of speaking of the work done by the Holy Spirit in bringing a person to faith in Christ is the image of coming out of darkness into truth. And it's interesting that we don't often hear that expressed that way. We might hear someone describing their experience of coming to Christ as coming out of darkness into joy or coming out of darkness into peace. And I'm not saying that's at all wrong, okay? I'm not saying that's at all wrong. But it's the joy of the truth of Jesus that leads us to peace and comfort and joy. And that is what Paul emphasizes over and over. It's just a bit odd sounding to me, brought out of darkness into truth. I don't think I hear that very much. And even more odd sounding is another phrase Paul uses here. In verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. It's an odd phrase. Vacation Bible School ended last week, and I I guess I could have asked uh, Kim, did any of the kids learn Christ? And it might be an odd-sounding phrase. We might say came to faith or accepted Jesus or was born again or converted. There's all kinds of ways to express it. But here Paul uses the phrase, learned Christ. And this sounds a bit odd to me, and it sounded a bit odd to his first readers. I'm told by people who are experts in this sort of thing that this construction, learned and then followed by a name, our title, learned Christ, is unique in all of Greek literature, classical Greek literature. That we have all kinds of examples of learned of Christ, or or learned of the king, or learned of this person or that person, learned about this person, learned about that person, but we don't have learned Christ or learned any name. But Paul says you've learned Christ. So it's really difficult to sort out what Paul means here. I mean, it's only used once in all of Greek literature. But at a minimum, I think it implies an intimate connection to Christ that's passed on by learning. And this brings us to the fourth question, what's the church's role in all of this? Now, it's obvious that Paul has the church in mind. He's just finished talking about unity in the church. First, here, learning Christ comes from the proclamation of the apostles' teaching. Notice how how verse 20 and 21 work together. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, at first glance, this sounds kind of sarcastic, but I don't think Paul is being sarcastic here. Paul certainly has a talent for being sarcastic when he wants to be. 
But I don't think he's being sarcastic. He, he, he uses the same construction at least twice in the book of Ephesians. I assume you've been taught this. I assume you've been taught this. And I think he's just being serious. Paul's been gone from Ephesus for at least eight years and maybe 12 years. And so he's giving them things he's taught them eight or 12 years ago. And he's saying, I, I assume that you're still talking about this. I assume that you're still being taught these things. The church's role is to proclaim what the apostles proclaimed. Because in that proclamation, people learn about Christ, but then they also come to know Christ and they come to learn Christ. Not just learn data about Christ, not just to learn Bible stories that come out of the Gospels, but to learn Jesus himself, as Paul says, as the truth is in Jesus. And secondly, the church has a role to play in guarding us from the culture that we live in. Now, there's two clues here that the church has a role to play here. And one is that the, the, the you in this chapter, the Y-O-U, you, is plural everywhere it's used in this chapter. Paul is writing to an entire church, and when he says you, he doesn't mean you and you and you and you and you and you, and you as individuals. He means you together. The you is the church. This, by the way, is an aside. Um, might be of some help to you. Oftentimes people stumble in Paul over things Paul says that we should be doing, and they don't realize that the, the, the you there is plural. For example, uh, rejoice evermore. And Christians say, well, I don't rejoice evermore. Sometimes I feel sad. Paul says we should rejoice evermore. But that's a command to the church. And in fact, elsewhere in that same passage, Paul talks about grieving with others who grieve. And the image of I, I have is that the church is all together. No, if you hear someone is sad, and people are comforting this person, and yet the whole church is rejoicing. Or another one, pray ever, pray ever, pray with no, pray, pray without ceasing. I've had people talk to me with real guilt. I don't pray without ceasing. Well, it's not each individual person. It's the church is praying without ceasing, and that's been a comfort to me. To know at any moment of the day. Even the Lord's Prayer is being prayed somewhere. And God is being asked for His will to be done and for His kingdom to come on earth. Somewhere that prayer is being made continuously. In fact, that's not a command to, to, to burden ourselves with, but something to rejoice in, that the church is praying without ceasing. But anyway, what Paul tells us to do, of course it applies to us individually, but it's in the context of the plurality of the community. What Paul tells us to do, to take off the old self, to put on the new self, and to renew, to renew our minds, is not supposed to be taking place in a dark room at home somewhere, but it's supposed to be taking place in the context of the church community. And that's important. It's important to know that you aren't on your own here. That we're all in this together. And secondly, I take comfort in this. When Paul tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he uses what grammatical scholars call the present perfect tense. And what that means for ordinary people is that it's a continuous action. Literally, when, when Paul says be renewed, he says keep, be, keep, be, keep being, being renewed. It's a constant, continuous process of keeping, being, being renewed. As we put off our old self and put on the new self, we're constantly to be renewing our minds. This isn't something that happens one time. And again, this is just pretty obvious. If you think about it, Paul's writing to believing Christians. And if this renewal of the mind 
was one thing that happened one time and someone came to faith in Christ, then there'd be no point in him even mentioning it. He's telling them you need to be in the process continually of removing, of renewing your mind. And why is this? Because we're surrounded by a pagan society. All of us. And all of us can't help being affected by the society we live in. All of us are distracted by the cause of materialism and to egoism and, and to popularity and all of these things. And so we have to go through a constant process of what Paul calls elsewhere in Ephesians, the washing of the water of the word. The constant process of renewing our minds. And again, this process is supposed to be done within the context of the church community. And my dream and my vision for servants is that we become a place in Gainesville for people to come to find Christ, to put off the old self, and then to find a place of constant renewal within the community. In Jesus' name, amen.